Believe that today is the day of salvation, that you are to flee from the wrath to come, to flee from the law of Moses that condemns you into the city of refuge who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Run to Him. Repentance is simply giving up to stop fighting against God and to stop attempting to gain your own salvation through your own works, to literally give up and fall upon Christ. That is salvation. So that you say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim. And when that seed grows in you to the point where you know that you're standing before God is 100 absolutely percent based and founded upon the perfect work and merit of Jesus Christ, then you stand before Him with confidence knowing that all your sins have been atoned for and that you are righteous in Christ. Tonight we're talking about salvation. And I think um, there's nobody better than Paul Washer to talk about salvation. <laughs> Amen. So I want you to turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're in the series called uh, What We Believe, and we've talked about the fundamentals of our faith, the different aspects of our faith, and we're going back to the basics of what we believe as Christians, because we said if it's not straight in our own mind, then it will never be clear from our own tongue. And um, so we're going back to these basics. We've been in this series now for uh, four lessons, and... We want to be bold today in the day and age we live in what we believe. We need to be able to say, this is what the Bible says. This is what is true. We don't have to pull back and be weak-kneed about this. Um, we need to be able to explain, this is what I've responded to, the gospel. And, and so we say these things not to be, I would say, not to be prideful or arrogant, but not to be even condescending, but we want to be assured that we can be confident in the message that God has given us, um, that we can relate it in a clear, concise way. This is what we believe. Because if it's not, like I said, straight in our own mind, it's never going to be, uh, we're never going to be able to share it confidently with others who may need to hear the message. We're always going to be holding back. Oh, I don't know enough. I don't understand enough. And so we live in a day where we have to be able to speak up and we have to live it out as true as we can, but we also have to um, share it from our own lips in a bold way. Anybody here like country music? Some? Um, you probably heard of Dolly Parton then. Well, Dolly Parton, a uh, big country music star, kind of a fun lady, and uh, when you go on the internet, there's all these quotes about Dolly Parton. But there was one quote that I read on the back of a book that she wrote, a biography, a number of years ago. And it kind of troubled me a little bit. Um, I haven't read the book, but on the back, she had kind of one of those little quotes pull out from the book. And it said this, and it was quoting Dolly Parton. She said, I'm not a very religious person, although I grew up in a very religious background. And then she said this, let every man seek his own salvation. That's my favorite Bible verse. <laughs> I thought, whoa. <laughs> There's a problem with that. <laughs> You're not going to find that in the Bible. Her favorite scripture is not in the Bible. In fact, when you look at scripture, when you look at the Bible, it actually says the very opposite of what she says it says. Um, it doesn't say that every man seeks his own salvation. That's not what the gospel says. Uh, there's only really... One way to be saved. The Bible says that clearly. And you know what? You can't even seek it. <laughs> it seeks you out. It finds you. And, and you're saved because God finds you and, he, and he, he falls upon us and causes us to repent. And so, you know, the moral of that story basically is stay away from country music. No, just kidding. But... <laughs> Well, not really. I mean, if you listen to country music, some of the songs my granddaughters listen to, I shake my head and go, what? But um, 
you got to know what the Bible says. That's the point. Because there's a lot of people out there in society today that are going to be willing to tell you what the Bible says. And that's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible says. And she doesn't do this out of meanness or intend to lead you astray, even though she kind of does that. I don't think it's intentional on her part. It's probably more ignorance than anything else. But there are a lot of people that I run into that, oh, oh yeah, you know, in the Bible it says this. And I stop and I say, really? You think it says that? Where does it say that? And you've got to call them out on it because it doesn't say that. Or it's a misinterpretation of what it says. And so we've been going through this series and we want to know for ourselves what the Scripture says. What it says. And how we can read it in plain English and get the meaning off the page. And that's why we're always saying, read your Bible, take your Bible, dust the Bible off, use your Bible. Uh, let the Bible be your source of study, because that's how God speaks to us today, through our Bibles. He's not going to appear in a cloud over your bed at night and give you, you know, some monologue. You know, he's going to talk to you through his word. And so you don't have to have that spoken word through another person telling you what the Bible says. You can look it up and discover it for yourself. You can go right to the source of truth, the word of God itself, and that's what we want to be able to do. And so we want to be able then to know the truth so that we can confidently what? Share the truth. That's the whole purpose. We want to be able to do this as confident believers. And today we're talking about something that's very important. Um, we have to be very clear on this today because there's a lot of people that are mixed up on this, and that is the question, how is a person saved? What about salvation? And if we don't know that basic question, we're going to have a lot of problems. Now, there's a lot of people that would say they're saved, right? You probably run into them all the time. Um, and when you begin to ask them, well, how were you saved? They can't even tell you. They can't articulate their faith. They can't tell you how they were saved. What's the process God took them through? And so if you can't articulate how God saved you, how in the world are you ever going to be telling other people that they need to be saved or how they can be saved if you don't even understand it yourself? And so we have to go back to what the Bible says about salvation, and that's what we're going to do today. We've been talking about what we believe about the Bible, about Scripture. We've been talking about what we believe about the character of God through the Trinity. Last week, we talked about what we believe about the Gospel, and we said, basically, this is the agent in which God uses to save people. He uses the Gospel. The power of God is in the Gospel. And now today we're going to talk about the result of the gospel. What happens when people hear the, the gospel? Well, hopefully they get saved. Salvation. We're going to talk about our salvation. So look at Ephesians chapter 2. And there's probably no passage more concise and more um, clearer about salvation than what we're going to look at tonight, these, these 9 and 10 verses. And so there in, in chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 1, look at what Paul writes. He says, and you. <laughs> Who's he writing to? The Ephesians, right? He's writing to who? Christians. He's writing to Christians. He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. Keep that in mind as we go through this. He's not talking to lost people. He's not talking to people that don't know Christ. He's talking to people who are saved. People who put their faith or trust in Christ. It's not an evangelistic passage we're going to be looking at. It's not Paul saying, hey, all you lost people, here's how you need to get saved. That's not what we're going to see. He, he, he's basically talking to saved people, and he's saying, hey, saved people, here's how you were saved. And you say, well, why would he do that? Because some of us have either forgotten or it's not clear to us how God saved us. We tend to forget things. And you can never be clear to someone else on how God can save them unless you're clear on how God saved you. And it's, God saves every person the same way. That's very important to understand. Every person that is ever saved is saved the exact same way. Every one of us. Now, it may come through a different experience, but you're saved the exact same way, all of us. 
If you're saved, you're saved the same way. And Paul says, let me remind you of what this way was. This is how you were saved. And so he says, and you, church, he says, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, look at this, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that you may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, we ask tonight that you'd open our hearts and our minds to your word, apply these truths to our lives. Lord, we thank you for each one that's come out and pray for those who are even hearing this recording in the future, that they would be convicted and drawn to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When you hear people saying negative things about Christianity or speaking down about Christianity, Christian faith, your Christian faith, it's often because of this word that we just read here, this word saved, that word saved. People don't think they need to be saved, frankly. Um, they don't want to be saved. And <clears throat> being saved brings about kind of a, a negative connotation. All right, there's something wrong with you if you need to be saved. You need a crutch. You need this. And they go on and on and, and deride Christianity. But at the heart of the gospel is the basic fact that you need to be saved. We all need to be saved. And the Bible tells us over and over and over again, you need to be saved. You need to be saved. It repeatedly tells us that. And what that means simply is this. And this is what you have to understand. When the Bible says you need to be saved, it means you need to be uh, rescued, you could say. You need to be delivered. Delivered from what? From, from the punishment and the penalty of our sin. That's what we're being delivered from, the punishment and penalty of our sin. That's what it means to be saved. It means to be rescued or delivered from, you could say, the pain and the punishment that comes because of our sin. And we all have sin in our lives, do we not? And so, again, this is God telling us how we have been saved. He's speaking to the church. This is a passage for the saved to remember how they were saved. Um, this is also a reminder for us, I think, as a church, that we need to rejoice. <laughs> We need to rejoice in our salvation because where were we headed? We were headed to hell. We were on our way to hell, on a fast track to hell. We were on our way to a place of paying for the penalty and the punishment for our sin. And we were what? We were rescued from that horrible trip that we would have made to hell. We were rescued. We were delivered. We were granted a reprieve. And the reason that we can sing with joy, the reason we can gather together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and point to God and, 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 and talk about the gospel, why? It's because we're saved. <laughs> we're delivered. We're, we're, we're spared the wrath of God. And the reason that we should leave here tonight and desire to show and to tell others who haven't heard or have yet to receive salvation in Christ is because we're so joyful over it. I think as, as Christians, sometimes we tend to lose our joy over our salvation. Stop and think. I, I am stunned when I stop and think about it for any period of time 
Why would God save me? Why? We're not trying to say anything other than he did this. He saved me. This is how he saved me. And guess what? He'll save you too. He can save you too. That's the attitude. It's, it's the attitude of one beggar sharing with another beggar where to find the bread. Because they're both without food. They're both uh, hungry. It's not somebody who has some big seminary degree talking to a sinner on how to be saved. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah, we're, we're sinners, but we're saved by what? We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. And, and, and you can be as well. That's what the attitude that should be in our heart when we're sharing the gospel. So what does Paul say here? Let's go back. Let's remind you of how God saved you. Um, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded sometimes. You know, you just get so caught up in the Christian life, you, you forget, wow, there was a day when someone shared the gospel with me, and I didn't understand it. And I said, no way. I don't want to hear it. And we were all at that point at some point. Maybe some here tonight are at that point. Um, but let's just be honest. We all need to be reminded how God saved us. How does this happen? Um, maybe it's been so long ago we have a hard time remembering. That's fine. But if you can't remember how God saved you, then it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be hard for you to share with someone else how God can save them. And so this is a good kind of little mini review. So let's look at four pictures here, what Paul gives us in this text. Um, number one there in your outline, he says, the desperate condition before salvation. The desperate condition before salvation. Uh, this is a condition in which we were all um, at one point in our life. <clears throat> it's a desperate condition. Um, now you hear people say this, you know, you, you ask them a question, you know, well, how long have you been a Christian? Oh, I've been a Christian all my life. Uh, wrong answer. <laughs> Impossible. Doesn't work that way. There's always has to be a point in a person's life where they went from darkness to light, right? Where they went from death to life. There has to have, you have to have that. If you don't have that, there's no conversion. There's no transformation. There's no salvation. Because the Bible says no one is born a believer. No one is born a Christian. A mouse, someone said this, a mouse in a cookie jar is still not a cookie. Uh, and so just because a person goes to church doesn't make him a Christian what the point is. Just because a person is born into a Christian family doesn't make him a Christian. Just because someone has been dunked in some water somewhere, baptized, doesn't make him a Christian. <clears throat> what do I mean? A Christian is someone who's a Christian. It's just that simple. But you had to become one. You weren't always one. You weren't born one. You had to be born again one. <laughs> right? And so he reminds us, let me tell you wh what you were. Um, he's talking to saved people, church people. This is what you were. And some of us have tragically forgotten this. And that's why we don't go after lost people with a passion, because we can't remember what we were like when we were lost. It's sad, but it's the truth. So let's look at how Paul describes this. He's, look at, at verse 1. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. You were spiritually dead. Um, Spiritually speaking, you were born dead. Every single one of us, you could say this, is, is a stillborn. A baby without life. What does, what's, what's the one thing a stillborn needs more than anything else? Think about it. I mean, does it need toys? No. Does it need the little cute onesies? No. Does it need nutrition? Does it need uh, water? Does it need food? Does it need better parents? No, 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 no. Stillborn babies need one thing and one thing alone. Because if they, if they don't get that one thing, nothing else matters. And what is it? They need life. They need life. They need life. See, all of us, spiritual speaking, you could say we're born stillborn. We were born dead. 
what that means biblically is we were separated from God. We were separated from God. We had nothing in us that wanted God. And we were, you could say, dead towards God. And, and what that means is, what dead means basically is, if you think about it this way, it means separation, right? We've all probably lost loved ones, someone who's been close to us and they die. Well, the first thing that happens when they die is you are what? You are separated from them. They are no longer there. Their body's there, but they're no longer there. You cannot communicate with them. You can't enjoy a relationship with them. Um, you can't enjoy communication. Why? Because you're separated by death. And so when a person is, you could say, born dead, stillborn, they're still, they're, they're separated from communicating with God. They can't. People who are spiritually dead are people who are not alive in their spirit. People who are not Christians, when they pray, guess what? It's not that God can't hear them, right? Because God is all-powerful. But it's that he won't hear them. Why? Because we're not in a relationship with God at that point. There's a separation. Sin is between us. You don't have access to life. You're, you're dead spiritually. And so, so spiritually dead people, even though they may say the words in prayer and say all these glittery things, they cannot communicate with God. Therefore, they cannot really pray. So death not only means separation from God, it also means that I am completely incapable of doing anything good. Or you could just say doing anything. When's the last time you saw a dead person do anything? Doesn't usually happen. I mean, I can't turn over a new leaf. I can't try harder. I, I can't be just a little bit better. We've we got to put that out of our mind because I'm dead. Spiritually dead. Um... And that goes for everyone. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for who has sinned? All, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why there's no boasting in our salvation. And there's, that's why there should be no judgment among Christians and even judging lost people, those who have yet to believe. Why? Who are we to judge? What do we have to be so proud about? Because everyone is born equally dead. You know, in the Bible... Um, New Testament, Jesus basically raised three people from the dead, the Bible tells us. A little girl who was dead just for a few moments, apparently. A teenage boy who was dead for uh, probably a few more hours. And then a grown, grown man, Lazarus, who was uh, dead for several days. Well, if you look at those three dead people that Jesus raised from the dead, let me ask you this question. Who was more dead? The little girl, because she was only dead for three minutes or however many minutes, or the teenage boy for a few hours, or Lazarus, because, well, he was dead for... No, they were all dead. They were all dead. Dead means dead. Dead is dead. It doesn't matter if it's a few moments, a few hours, a few days. Dead is dead. Everyone who is born, spiritually speaking, the Bible says, is completely separated, is incapable of accessing the life of God because they're dead. You can't do good. You can't try harder. And what that means is this. Even the things that you think are good, guess what? They're tainted by sin. Even the things you think are good are tainted by sin. We call that what? Total Depravity. Total depravity. Total depravity. There's nothing good in us. Your thoughts, your actions, your endeavors, your motives, everything is tainted by sin. It's kind of, think of it this way. It's kind of like if you were to take the clothes out of the, the dryer and you threw them on the couch and your wife said, hey honey, could you, could you fold the clothes for me? They're nice and clean and they're on the couch. And you said, sure. And you come in and you just change the oil in the car and your fingers are just filled with grease and sweat and grime. And you come, you come over to the couch and you start folding those nice white load of clothes. What's going to happen? They're going to get dirty. 
right? There's no way around it. You're going to taint that clean laundry. And God says it doesn't matter how hard you try, you're incapable of doing anything because you're, you're dirty at your core. You're, you're sinful. Therefore, it's impossible for you to do anything. He's saying you're separated from me. Total depravity. So when someone then is spiritually dead and, and they experience, listen, physical death, right? They're spiritually dead. They don't know God. And then they experience physical death. They die physically. Guess what that leads to? Eternal death. Eternal death. You have spiritual death, which is a separation from God. You have physical death, which is the soul separating from the body. And then you have eternal death. Three deaths in the Bible. Spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. All of us are born spiritually dead. And what do we need more than anything else? Just like that, that stillborn baby, we need life. We need life. But we do not have this life, if we don't have this life given to us, and we experience physical death, it's always going to lead to eternal death. Eternal separation from God. But the good news is spiritual People can be given, given life. We're born into death, but we can be born again into life. And that's why when we experience, as believers, those who have been born again, when we experience physical death, what happens? We still have eternal life. <laughs> death is not, it's just a bump in the road for us. We're with the Lord. So what we're talking about is a person who is born spiritually who experience physical death, they have eternal death. They're eternally separated from God, and they're eternally incapable of doing anything that pleases God. You're never going to change that eternal situation when you arrive there, in the eternal death situation. It, it doesn't matter what you do, how hard you try. It's not going to be resolved, because it's going to take you all of eternity to try to pay for your sins. You will have no part in the life of God. And that's why our, our, our hearts should be passionate about and praying for people who don't know God, who don't know the life of Christ, and, and praying for opportunities to share the gospel with unbelievers. Um, there's people in our own church who are spiritually dead. They come every week. They're spiritually dead. They need salvation. They think because they come to church, they're doing God a favor. And we need to pray for those people. Pray that they would come to Christ. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. Apart from that, you're separated from the, the life of God. He doesn't stop there. Uh, that's bad enough, right? But he, he keeps on going. He goes, puts another layer on top of that. He says, you're not only spiritually dead, but secondly, you're, you're totally defeated. You're totally defeated. Um, look at verses 2 and 3. He says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we were all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so the Bible clearly tells us we have three enemies in this life. We have three enemies. The enemy of the world, right? And then we have the enemy of the devil. And then we have the enemy of the flesh. Those are three things that we deal with almost daily, those three enemies. And guess what? Outside of Christ, we are defeated by all three. We are defeated by all three. Those three enemies were defeated by all three of those. All three of those are in verse 2 there, right? He says you're defeated by the world. He's not talking about creation. Prince of the power of the air there. Um, he's not talking about 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 creation. Um, he's talking not about people. He's talking about the culture, the culture of the world, What's, what, what goes on, the course of this world, you could put it. Um, he's talking about the value system that we see around us. Because when, when you and I are born, we are what? We are following, naturally, the course of this world, the Bible says. And guess where the world is going? The world is going to hell. Okay, in a handbasket. It's going quickly. And 
if God doesn't spare us, if God doesn't save us, guess what? We're going right along with it. And the Bible tells us that the world is under the condemnation. Uh, it uses the word the wrath of God. And when we follow the world apart from life, when we follow the world, when we follow the world's system, we go where the world goes. And that is hell. But what happens is this. When we are lost, the value system comes from the world. When someone who doesn't have their faith in Christ, they don't know God, they've rejected the gospel, where are they getting their values from? Where are they getting their morals from? They're getting it from the world. But guess what? When we are saved, what does God do? God pumps his life into us and his word into us, and then all of a sudden our values come from where? They come from this book, not the world. And so your values either come from the world or they come from God's word. There's no other place. Uh, if you say you're a believer, um, but you don't know anything about this, guess what? This is where your values are coming from. They're coming from the world. If you're always buried in Facebook or on your computer or TV or whatever, you're listening to talk shows, news, all this stuff, guess where all their values are coming from? The world. The world. And when you pipe all that stuff in your brain, it has an effect. <clears throat> you don't really have a chance because your values are going to come from the world. And that's why God is saying, hey, I, I've given you the word. You don't need to go to the world for your value system. I've given you the word. And that's why if we study and we choose to read it and study it and make it our own, um, it, it's important to do that. And so he says, one enemy is the world, another enemy is the devil. He says, following the prince of the power of the air, air that's the devil, the spirit that is now in the works of son, sons of disobedience, that's Satan. Every single person you ever come in contact with is either being led by, the Satan, by Satan, by the spirit of this world, or he's being led by the Son of God. Think about that. One of those two things. Either being led by Satan or they're being led by the Son of God. That's it. There's no other choice. Led by Satan or led by the Savior. Led by the enemy or led by God. Every single person. Now it doesn't mean that every single person apart from Christ has got some demon in them and you know Satan lives inside of them. I'm not saying that. But they're being led in the opposite direction of what God desires. And they're defeated. They're completely defeated because they've been defeated by the world. And they're following that course. They've been defeated by the enemy who's leading the world. And then he also says they're defeated by the flesh. We have two outward enemies, you could say, the world and, and the enemy, Satan. And we have this inward enemy. Each one of us has this um, in our own flesh, our, our sinful um, flesh that we dwell in. And we're all born with that. That's why you don't have to teach your kids how to sin. You know, when you have children, you don't have to sit them down and say, okay, Johnny, here's how you lie. <laughs> here's how you steal. You don't have to do that. They just do it. They do it. Right? Here's how, here's how you got to beat up your brother. No, they just do it. You know? Um, why? They were born in death. They were born in death. Um, it says there that you were born in your trespasses, in your trespasses and sin. So you were born in sin, and sin does what? Sin always kills. Um, don't believe this. Some people believe this, and it's wrong. Some people believe that um, you sin, and that's when you become a sinner. You're a sinner because you sin. No, 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 no. You sin because you're already a sinner, <laughs> declared by God. You were born in trespasses and sin. That's why those little rugrats, you, you know, you think are angels, um, you know, when their, their legs get longer, it says, someone said their wings, their angel wings get shorter, and they turn into little, you know, demons or whatever, these little kids that terrorize you. Um, But when you, you know, we laugh about that, but when you stop and think about it as a parent, when you, when you come to realize 
wow, my kids are on their way to hell, as cute as they are. They're on their way to hell apart from Christ. Wow. Apart from the gospel. Apart from being saved. That's why we constantly are kind trying to tell parents and, and loved ones, you know, you need to share the gospel with your children. Don't depend on Sunday school teacher to do it. Don't depend on the pastor to do it. Don't depend on the elder to do it. I mean, we want to, we're here to help you and work with you and cooperate with you. But that's your job as parents. Your kids that God gave you to be a steward of, you have to understand they are going to hell apart from Christ. That's a very sobering thought. And what are you going to do to stand in the way of that? It's our responsibility as parents. It's, it's is to disciple our kids by sharing the good news of the gospel with them. And I hear it all the time. I used to hear it when I was a youth pastor, and I used to just lose my mind with these parents. They say, well, we're just letting little Johnny, you know, we, want, we don't want to force him to do anything he doesn't want to do. So little Johnny doesn't want to come to church, so we're not going to force little Johnny to come to church. We're just going to let him make his own mind up. It's like, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? I mean, think of the things we force kids to do. Right? I mean, if a young child has an issue with a diaper, what do we do? Sometimes they're kicking and screaming, but what do we do? We change their diaper because we don't want them to stink. All right? As the kids get older and they come out and their teeth are green, what do you do? You send them into the bathroom, wash, brush your teeth. You know, you don't just say, well, I don't want to force you to do anything. You know, I'm just going to let you go, you know, and, and, and let your teeth rot out of your mouth. No. You know, when your children don't want to go to school, what do you do? You force them to go to school. You make them do things they don't want to do. That's just part of being a parent. But when it comes to the most important thing in life and eternity, you're going to say, well, I don't want to force the child to go to church. You know, I want him to make up his own mind. I don't want to force him to read the Bible. I don't want to force him to pray. We can't do that. You force your children to go to church because maybe something will happen at church that clicks with them. Maybe they'll hear the gospel. Maybe God will save them and they'll want to go to church. They'll want to read the Bible. Sometimes we're all forced to do something against our will. That's just part of life. And the reason is this is so that something becomes something that we do out of our will, right? I mean, we all have to force our things to do things we don't want to do. But our kids, our children, are totally defeated. They're spiritually dead. They're totally defeated by the world, the devil, and our own flesh. Um, they have no chance of winning this battle. And you're just going to say, well, you know, I'm just going to let them choose. That's ridiculous. Here's a third thing that we see. Paul is, is kind of laying it on here thick, but it's, it's important that we see this. They think Jesus came to, people today think that Jesus came to meet and increase, um, put it this way, their life from like a, a 75 to a 92 on a grade scale. That's how people look at Jesus. What's a 75? It's a C. You know, but maybe with Jesus, I'll get an A. That's how we look at it. Because um, the average person, I don't think, on the street would say, oh, I'm a great, great person. I'm a great person. No, they'd say, you know what, I'm not you know, that bad. I'm maybe a C. Most people would be humble about that. There are some people that are egotistical, but for the most part. Um, and they think of it this way. They think, if, you know, if I just had Jesus, maybe my C, my 75, will go to a, a 92 or a 95, and I'll have an A. Um, guess what? Whether you got a 75 or you got a 92 or a 95, you're still going to hell. <laughs> you're still going to hell. Because you have to have 100%. You have to be completely perfect. As Jesus said, my Father in heaven is perfect. 
And guess what? Last time I checked, none of us are there. So Jesus did not come into this world to, to and give his life um, to take your sorry little life from a 75 to a 92. That's not why he came. He came to give you life and literally to kill your own life. You die when you come to Christ. And that's the good news. Third thing here is that we're hopelessly doomed. We're hopelessly doomed. He says we're hopelessly doomed apart from that. We are spiritually dead because we're, we're totally defeated. And because of that, we're eternally doomed. We're hopelessly doomed. And, and, and Paul is really, really talking about us before our salvation if we are believers. Um, and, and what he's doing is he's sharing this bad news with us. Because as we learned last week, you can't share with people how good the good news is unless you tell them what? How bad the bad news is, right? It, you don't have any reference. And the world is not going to tell them the bad news. I mean, the world just lathers it up, you know. Oh, you're a good person. Oh, you know, what do you need to be saved from? You know, no, you just keep doing what you're doing. That's what the world is saying. The world is saying, I don't need to be saved. They don't need to be saved. Everybody's telling me I'm pretty good. And Paul wants us to remember that before you were saved, you were hopelessly doomed. And look at what he says in verse 3. He says, and we're by nature the very nature of us, he says, children of wrath. And then he says, not just you, but the rest of mankind as well. That means every person who is born is on their way to an eternal hell. And God will not, he cannot allow even one half of one sin to go unpunished, or he would not be God. He has to be just. And so everyone is on their way to God, hell, and that's what we call justice. And God says, you know what? Um, I'm going to condemn all sin. And when you were born, you were, you're, you're headed to hell. You're already defeated. You're already doomed. You have no chance unless someone steps in and saves you, unless someone rescues you. That's where he's going with this. And that's what Jesus said basically in John 3.18. He says, he who believes in him is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because you're born that way. You're born condemned. Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Um, they've been condemned ever since birth. And they're going to continue that way, just following the world and following everything all the way to hell. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And, and there are a lot of people who come to this and they, they struggle. Well, how can God, a God of be a God of love, and how can God be a God of wrath at the same time? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it does when you think about it this way. God's wrath is a function of God's love. God's wrath is an outgrowth of God's love. What does God love? God loves his purity. He loves his holiness. He loves his peace. He loves his perfection. He loves all of that. And what does he do? He reacts and, and we would say angrily, he reacts wrathfully to anything or anyone who would try to taint or contaminate his purity. And so he, he loves purity, he loves peace, he loves perfection, and he reacts with wrath against anything that would taint that which is in us. We're born under God's wrath. Because we're born in sin. And so we have no chance. And if something doesn't change, because we've already been defeated by the world, the flesh, and the enemy, um, we'll go the way of the world, and we will go the way of Satan, and we will go the way of our sinful flesh all the way to hell. We will follow that road, that path, to the end. He says, you're doomed, you're absolutely doomed. And, and by the way, hell is a literal place it actually exists. It's a place where people will experience the wrath of God, the punishment of God, the penalty of God on their sin for all of eternity. That's what hell is. It's not a party. Everyone in hell will be getting exactly what they deserve. Now here's the flip side. Here's the flip side. Because hell is all about justice. 
hell is all about justice, God carrying out his justice. Everyone in hell will be getting exactly what they deserve. But you know what? No one in heaven will be getting what they deserve. Think about that. No one in heaven will be getting what they deserve. Hell is all about justice, whereas heaven is all about what? It's all about grace. In hell, everyone is getting what they deserve. In heaven, no one is getting what they deserve. And, and mercy and grace, you could put it this way, are two sides of the same coin. We have two sides of the same coin, mercy and grace. But heaven and hell are starkly different because one is getting what they deserve. And, and a lot of people say, well, you know, that doesn't seem fair. God sending people to hell doesn't seem fair. It's exactly what people who are sinners deserve. It's completely fair. It's completely just, or God would not be good. What's not fair is when we go to heaven and God gives people what they don't deserve. That's not fair. Because they deserve punishment just as much as the people in hell do. Now here's the second part of this, and he gets into this, and it's, it's the provision, right? It's, you're saying, okay, enough with the bad news, let's move on. And the reason I hammer that is because, you know, we don't tell people these things. We're afraid to tell people these things. We're afraid to tell people who do not come to Christ, you're on your way to hell, to an eternal hell. We think, well, that's offensive. That's, you know, that would, they would be upset. Yes, yes, they should be upset. That should trouble their soul. And so we go straight to the other part, all the good news. Jesus wants this, and he wants to make your life so happy, and all this, this garbage we tell people. And we leave out the bad part. And so he goes from this desperate condition before salvation to the divine provision of salvation. The divine provision of salvation. Look at verse 4. <laughs> I love this verse. Verse 4. He says, but God, but God, two words. <clears throat> it's amazing how two words can change everything, everything. It's kind of like um, when you get married, right? Two words. Change your life completely. I do, right? Those two words radically change your life. Your earthly life is radically changed when you utter those two words, I do. But here, these two words, but God, change not just your earthly life, but your eternal, eternal life. Life after this world. And what he's saying, if it weren't for God, guess what? You would not be saved. You would not be saved. But God, if you're saved, it's because of God. It's not because of you. You didn't find God. You didn't save yourself. Salvation is because of God. It's for God. It's all about God. It's through God. It's not, not us. How do we know that? Because we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were defeated. We were doomed. It's not you, but God. He's coming to the rescue. Amen? And again, rescue does not mean anything unless you know if someone doesn't come, you have a clear understanding, I am going to die. <laughs> I mean, if you showed up in my backyard and said, Pastor, I'm here to rescue you. I'd be like, well, what are you talking about? You know, I'm sitting in a change, change lounge drinking an iced tea or something. I'd think you're crazy. But if I was up in a tree, and I was in peril, and you showed up and you said, Pastor, I came to rescue you. What? I, I would welcome your help, right? See, here, you have to understand, rescue doesn't mean anything unless you know you're going to meet a dire end if someone doesn't rescue you. Um, a, a neat Bible study to do, I challenge you to do this, go through your Bible and, and look up those two words, but God but God. They're all over the place. I wrote some there in your outline. Psalm 49, 15. But God will redeem you from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. 
Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or Acts. It says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from dead, from the dead. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And John 3.36 um, talks about the idea that we need to believe in the Son, and if we do that, he will have eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. See, we're all headed to hell. We're sinners, and guess what? God stepped in, and he saved us. But God, that's what he wants us to see here. Now, Paul is giving us these answers, but he's kind of anticipating this question. And the question is simply this, why? Why would God do this? I mean, we all know how bad we are. We know how bad we were before we came to Christ. We know how bad we are even now in Christ, right? Um, we've all probably done some things we're ashamed of. We're definitely ashamed of before the Lord. You know, and it's not things like, oh, uh, you know, I, I used a marker when I should have used a pencil. No, we're talking about some pretty bad things. And, and that's what he wants us to understand. So we've been spiritually dead, totally defeated. We're eternally doomed. But God came in and he rescued us and he delivered us. And that's supposed to cause us to ask the question, why? Why would God do this? Have you ever asked that? Why would God save me? And not my brother or not my sister or not my neighbor. Why would God save this? Well, look at what it says. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Someone said this, you will never find why God saved you by looking at you. You will never say, you will never figure out why God saved you by looking at you. Um, you know, well, look in the mirror, it's okay looking, you know, or I, I'd like to help people, or I have these talents, or I'm a moral person, or I go to church. Or, no, you will never, ever find out why God saved you by looking at you. And that's exactly what the world does. They want to look for reasons why God would and should save them. You'll never find the motive of God to save you by looking at you. God's heart is not stirred when he, he, he looks at you to save you. Um, his heart to save you is in his own character. That's why it says he is rich in mercy. That word rich means boundless. It means endless. It means ceaseless. It's not like he looked at you and said, oh, I gotta have him on my team. I gotta save that guy. This means you cannot see the bottom. It's so much you can't see the bottom. That's what it means. That word rich. For our God is rich, bottomless in mercy. He's never going to run out of mercy. That's an amazing thing. And the mercy of God and the grace of God, as I said earlier, always go together. They're two sides of the same coin. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. That's what mercy is. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. What you don't deserve. So mercy is, is God really having pity on us in his mercy. But then in his grace, he pardons us. Mercy, he holds back what we deserve, and in grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. Because hell is what we deserve, is it not? We all deserve hell. But that's not what we're getting. Why? Because of God's mercy. And when he doesn't send you to hell for all that you've done, for all that I've done, that's mercy. But on top of that, I mean, that would be enough not to have to go to hell. But on top of that, then he says, you know what? I'm going to send you to heaven. Wow. Really? I mean, it's one thing not just to go to hell. Maybe he could have just annihilated us. You know, just, okay, you're wiped out. That's it. Um, but he, he doesn't do that. That would still be mercy, by the way, because I wouldn't want to go to hell. I'd rather be annihilated than go to hell. But that's not what God does. On top of that, he says, you know what? I'm not going to send you to hell um, for your sin, but I'm going to give you everlasting life in heaven in glory with me forever. That's grace. That's grace. 
And those two things always go together. God's mercy is rich. It's ceaseless. He doesn't want to give you what you deserve. It'd be like if we were driving down Jefferson. What, I think it's 30 miles an hour, right, over there in Jefferson. And down there by the school where the fire truck, the fire firehouse is. And, and we're driving... And most of us probably are cautious there, one, because the police patrol that pretty heavily, but also because there's a school there. You know, you don't want to hit little children with coming out of school and stuff like that. So you're probably driving pretty carefully there. But can you imagine the scenario where you're driving down Jefferson through the school zone, the kids are out, coming out of classes, and you're going 105 miles an hour. <laughs> and the patrolman pulls you over. I mean, and his kid goes to the school, by the way. I mean, think about this, you know. I mean, he would be ticked off. He'd probably pull out of the car. There'd probably be some nasty stuff going on with you. But think if this happened. Think if he pulls you over, he comes up to your car door, where you roll the window down, and you're like, oh, man, this is over. I am losing my license. I'll probably go to prison. This is so stupid. Why did I do this? And he says, hey, how are you doing today? Are you having a good day? And you're like, whoa, what in the world is happening? You know, and he's like, you know what? Uh, yeah, yeah, I realize you're going a little fast there, you know, but we got a new program, you know. Here are two starting tickets for the, the 49ers opening game. And I just wanted to bless you with these today. You know what? Have a great day. And he gets back in the patrol. What would that be? That would be mercy. That would be grace. That would be a miracle, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, that would never happen. I mean, a fine for that would probably be a million dollars. But think about it. That's what God has done. That's what God has done with us. We have violated every principle that God calls us to obey, and yet he says, you know what? I am going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you. I have provided a way out. I have provided a way out. That's grace. That's mercy. And he's rich in both. And that's why he says that he gives us mercy and grace. Um, you know, it, it's something when, when, you, when you think about it. It all comes down to those two words, but God, but God. It's his character. It's not us. He's rich in mercy and grace. And it's because of the love that he loves us with. It's his love. Um, that's the provision. So we're defeated, we're doomed, we're dead, but God. And then the third thing here, the dynamic procession into salvation. How does this happen? Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know. I'll just tell you, I don't know how this happens. Why, why does God save us um, and not save others? Uh, how does this procession happen? Um, how does a person go from death to life, from light to darkness? Well, he says... For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's what he says there. It's not a result of something we do. So he's pretty clear on that. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 11.6 it says, And without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He's talking about the whole salvation package here. What is not of your own doing, according to that verse, God's grace. What is not of your own doing? Faith. What is not of your own doing? Being saved by faith and grace. And now you've been saved, and here's the thing. You're not saved by faith. You hear people say that all the time. Oh, you're saved by faith. You just got to believe. You just got to practice faith. That's what the Word of Faith teachers teach, right? Nobody is saved by faith. We're saved by what? We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. God does the rescuing. God says that our salvation is a gift. It's his son. And he's the, 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 the personification of grace, you could say. But God says, I won't save you by grace without the presence of faith. Well, where do we get the faith? That's right. It's a gift from God. God gives us this gift. Um, sometimes we have the idea we just got to try harder, we just got to really believe, and we have to work up the faith. And, and, and No, even the faith that we place in him is a gift from God. So the grace is a gift, and then God gives you the faith to believe. And so the faith is not a reward of 
of grace. It's not like, oh, you came to church for 10 weeks, now I'll give you some faith so you can believe. It's the result of grace. You get faith only by the grace of God if you believe. If you believe. Um, and you believe only because God gave you the faith to believe. It's not because of anything you did. So we're totally, utterly dependent on that. Faith is a God-given conviction that the promise of forgiveness of sin, resurrection of life, and eternal heaven through Jesus Christ is true. That's what faith is. But it's given to us by God. I mean, you think about the gospel. You think about this, this story of God sending us. I mean, it's so crazy when you think about it. You know, and you, when you explain it to people, they're like, well, what am I going to do? Nothing. <laughs> you know, they, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, who would ever believe this, right? That's exactly the point. We, we, we don't have it in ourselves to believe it. It has to be a gift from God. Unless God says you're going to believe it. How does all that happen? I don't know. That's the mystery of salvation. When you figure it out, let me know. Um, how is it that in Ephesians 1, it tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world, right? And yet, then he says, whoever comes, who, whoever believes, whoever trusts in, those are the ones that are going to be saved. Wait a minute, I thought you said he already chose us. Well, he did. But now he says, well, you guys still got to believe. It's both. It's crazy. Um, you can't will yourself to believe. You can't make yourself believe it. You can't force yourself to believe it. I mean, today, if you're struggling to believe the gospel, I would encourage you to pray, as, as in the New Testament, you know, help me in my unbelief. Right? Help me. Help me, God. I, I, I want to believe. I, I can't. I, I don't know what to do. Well, the last thing here, quickly, is the dramatic position because of salvation. This is kind of exciting. Verses 5 to 7. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. Made us. God made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he says, and he also raised us up. Doesn't say we raise ourselves up. He raised us up. And then he seated us with him. This is the exciting part. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When he saves us, he puts us in a position. What's our greatest need? Life. He says that when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you were dead. And, and he made us what? He made us alive. So he, he, we were dead. He gave us life. What's the second problem? We were totally defeated. And he says, by grace, you've been, you've been saved and, and raised up. When you're defeated, you're down. You're you're, you're downcast. Um, you need life. You're, you're, you're dead and he gives you life. When you're defeated, you're going down. He raises you up. He lifts your countenance. He lifts your spirit. He puts joy in your heart. And then he says that he what? He seats us with him. What was the last one? We're eternally doomed. Remember that? What that means is we're all going to hell but he gave us life because we were dead. He raised us up because we were defeated. And now he gives us heaven because we we're on our way to hell. And he says in salvation, he gives you the complete opposite of where you were headed. And now he says you are, look at that, you are seated. Right? It's not a rocket science question, but that's present tense. That means now. You're seated right now in heavenly places. What's he trying to convey here? It's not that just Jesus is here and, you know, he's living in you and, and, and he, that's all true, but he's saying, no, you are in heaven, in him. You are now seated with him in heaven, with Christ. You're as good as there. It's not something that's going to happen eventually. No, in God's mind, you're already there. Why is that important? It's important because, you know what? That proves the assurance of our salvation. When God has changed our lives, he's transformed us, he's saved us, he says, you know what? I know you're still going to live out your life here on earth, but I'm going to put you positionally next to my son in heaven. That's why our assurance of salvation is so secure. He would have to rip you 
away from Christ off his throne, he would have to take away your belief. He would have to undo everything that he has done. Why would he do that? He wouldn't do that. He put us there permanently. What a glorious thing. So he wants us to understand this. He wants us to understand this is how we are saved and why we were saved. And this is the position we now have in Christ. And I would just ask that you consider these things and really ask the Lord to give you a, a undying passion and burden for those who have yet to know, to come to know Christ. Because, you know what? We were all there at one time. And we need to be reminded of that. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, thank you for Paul's words to our hearts in Ephesians. And, and Lord, we ask that you would uh, remind us that we are in desperate need of you each and every moment. We don't have this. Um, we can't pat ourselves on our back and think that we're some big, high and mighty spiritual person because we all deal with a myriad of sins every day, if the truth be known. And Lord, sometimes we are able to walk away. Sometimes we are able to defeat temptation. Sometimes we are not. But Lord, one thing that proves true in your word is that you have forgiven us of all of our sins, past, present, future. Lord, that you even now have, have us sitting in the heavenlies with Christ in your, in your mind. And so we, we thank you for that security we have in Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for our salvation. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to drive home to us these basic tenets of our faith, that we would be better equipped to share with a lost and dying world the hope that lies within us, the hope that Christ still saves even today. We thank you and we praise you. Bless our conversation tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.